John 21. This is it, folks. The long-awaited day. And in a good way. In a good way, indeed. So, uh, let's pick up in verse 18 uh, from this text. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper, and had said, Lord, who is it? Who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad amongst the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who was bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we look to you as the God who calls people out of sin and into paths of righteousness. You call us out of confusion and darkness and into the light. Show us this morning more of what following Jesus looks like. Remind us again of the power that we receive from the Holy Spirit so that we can follow Jesus in the first place. Help us to be grateful that we're not simply groping in the dark, but that we, there is a path that you have laid out for us that may not be known to us, but is known to you. And that you never leave us nor forsake us as we walk this path. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, we're at the last Presbytery meeting. Um, we got an update from the, the various churches that were without a call, uh, pastor at that point in time. And the one that was in Santa Fe, um, I kind of, as they were talking about the person they hoped to uh, bring before the congregation in May, um, there's some vagueness to it. And I thought, I bet this is a guy that's from this presbytery. So, Tuesday night, as uh, after the session left, I uh, I tend to decompress 
Um, all that built up tension, as we, t- it's not that I don't like being with the elders. It's just, it's, I'm with people and we're talking about difficult things. And so I need alone time. So I usually go online. And one of the things I, I saw as I was looking at Facebook was one of the young church planters in our presbytery made the big announcement that he was the guy who had been called to go to Santa Fe. And then as I checked my email, there is the call for the meeting of Presbytery that was to dissolve his call in Phoenix and approve his new call in uh, Santa Fe. And it's interesting what the heart does. On the one hand, I'm very thankful for my brother. He is a young man who is incredibly brilliant. He's very gifted in terms of um, not just his intelligence, but also his, I think, emotional intelligence in dealing with people. Uh, he's a very gifted young man, um, and I think God will do great things. Um, so I'm, I'm happy for him. It was not something that he sought, but some, they sought him out. And whenever I have lunch with Jack, Jack goes to me, Steve, are you going anywhere? And I go, No. <laughs> No one's called me. He's expecting that any day now I will get a phone call from a large church like the one in Santa Fe and that I will get called away from this place. And I can always turn it down. <laughs> so part of what I was feeling as I'm reading this and, and partially as I looked at the terms of the call um, was envy, a difficulty in my own heart. While I'm glad for him, it's sort of like what the days when I was single, you know, when you're glad your friend's getting married, but you also feel like you wish you were getting married. I felt that. So that was Tuesday night, turning into Wednesday morning. And then Thursday, I read the letter from that I read to you. And I saw a worship service of 200. And it was like a gut punch at that moment. Because I feel like, what am I doing wrong? And that's really not, I'm happy for them. I'm glad for them. But again, that little envy thing rose in my desperately wicked heart. Why am I talking about this? Well, we, we all live on differing life trajectories. And I'm not using this word in the way we used it in Sunday school, so don't worry. Um, the path that Jesus calls me to walk is not the same path that he calls Greg to walk or that he calls Luke to walk. And we see an element of that in this text this morning. What matters is the call of Jesus that is given twice to Peter in the midst of this text. Follow me. That is what matters. Not the size of the church that I might pastor, or even the location of the church I might pastor, but really, am I following Jesus? And it's the same thing for you. It's not about how glamorous your vocation might be, how well-behaved your kids might be, or the various circumstances of your life, but are you following Jesus? Our big idea this morning is that Jesus calls us to to follow him in our circumstances, which may sound a little odd to you, but we'll get there, and hopefully it will make sense. 
first part I want us to consider this morning is that following Jesus brings different and sometimes difficult circumstances. I added a D in there this morning. See, Ken, I do stuff this morning. Jesus continues to speak to Peter. As we saw last week, he asked those three very difficult questions and essentially reinstated Peter into the company of disciples turning into apostles. He continues. And the implication seems to be that at some point they've moved away from everybody else, and so they're probably walking along the shore as they're having this conversation, and Jesus decides to share some news with Peter that I'm sure he found to be quite difficult. It's semi-cryptic. Peter, essentially, was independent when he was younger. He would dress himself and he would walk wherever he wanted. And Jesus seems to indicate that those days of self uh, or independence are sort of passing away, but he talks more about the long-term distant future when he says, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, you will not gird or dress yourself, and someone will lead you to a place where you do not want to go. That sounds cryptic to us. It was generally understood by the original audience that Jesus is referring to crucifixion. And in fact, John editorially notes that in this way Jesus indicated the type of death by which Peter was going to glorify God. And now that is one of those things that just ought to strike us as very important. Okay? His crucifixion. Just like Jesus' crucifixion was going to glorify God. And it's not just the life of Peter which was intended to glorify God, but it was also going to be the death of Peter which was going to glorify God. Paul captures some of this as he writes to the Philippians, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Peter, just like Paul, was going to engage in fruitful labor. He didn't know this at this point, but for about another 30 years. There would be very fruitful work on him. His labor was not going to be in vain. He was one of, in a sense, the pillars of the church the twelve pillars upon which God would build an incredible living edifice. And he was to glorify God in that. And he was also going to glorify his God in his death, which for him would be considered gain, because to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. Which is why Paul in another place could say in 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, and we could apply this, whether you live or die, do all to the glory of God. Which is why I love my brother's final words. To God be the glory. He got that. George did. 
You see, Peter had earlier boasted that he was about to lay his life down for Jesus, and instead of doing that, he denied Jesus three times. And so this is connected to that reinstatement. There's a reason why Jesus brings this up. It's not just a fun factoid that he wants to shock Peter with his knowledge of the future. It's to say to Peter, you will lay down your life for me. Just not yet. Because I have something for you to do first. I have fruitful ministry, but you will glorify me. You will eventually keep your word. You will lay down your life for me after you have laid it down day after day after day by feeding my sheep. Now, we don't know how we're going to die. As I considered our brother George, he thought his heart was going to kill him. He never thought it would be his lungs. He was anxious about his heart. We are often anxious. Sometimes it's because of how a loved one has died and how we think that that might mean we're more susceptible to that form of cancer or that illness that is genetically transferred. And we can worry about how it is that we're going to die because we are children of Adam. And as it talks about in Hebrews 2, we fear death. And here, Jesus tells Peter exactly how he's going to die. He takes the mystery out of that element. You're not going to die peacefully in your sleep, Peter. You're going to die a painful death. But even that is going to glorify me. This means that there are 30 years of Peter's life left for him to live and glorify Jesus. And so Jesus says, follow me. Jesus often talked about following him. We see this, in, uh, for instance, in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I think when Peter hears this, he needs some rest. Okay, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, I, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And so part of what it means to follow Jesus is to allow him to, and I use that, in the best possible sense, to place his yoke upon you. Meaning, you are not independent anymore. You are not, in this case, you place a yoke on a farm animal. You're not an animal that's just wandering in a pasture, but you are, there is a yoke that is placed on you to direct you and to guide you so that you are going to be fruitful for the one who owns you. And so discipleship, in, in part, is seen as this idea of a yoke being placed upon you so that you do the bidding of Jesus. We see in Mark chapter 8, and calling the crowd to himself with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. And so following Jesus means giving up your kingdom. Giving up your life. And what you think, it, how you think it should turn out. 
and going where Jesus leads you so that it turns out the way he intends for it to turn out. Okay? To leave a life of sin and to follow Jesus, as it talks about in Psalm 23, that idea of the good shepherd, into paths of righteousness. But first, we go through the valley of the shadow of death. But we must not fear for he is with us in that. And so this is really a loaded statement that Jesus makes. These two words have a lot behind them. The whole context of this in John's Gospel is the fact that Jesus is the Good Shepherd. Jesus is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. And so apart from this, the Gospel of Jesus crucified, there are no sheep to follow him. You don't have the capacity or the interest in following Jesus unless He first dies for you. Unless you first are given new life in the Holy Spirit. You're not able to continue to walk this path that He lays out unless you have the indwelling Spirit flowing up in life, strengthening you to walk that path behind Him. You will not follow Him unless you believe that He lives and He rewards those who follow Him. Like it talks about a little bit in Hebrews 11. Think about this encounter we read about from Second uh, Kings chapter two. Why is it that Elisha is following Elijah? He thinks there's something to gain by this, that God will be at work in this. And in fact, God was at work in that, and God did enrich him greatly for the blessing of his people. So. The shepherd now leads us. We see a connection with Psalm 23. We also hear echoes of, of God's discussion with Abraham. Earlier in uh, Genesis 12, he calls them out of Ur to a place he's going to show him. How's that for, you know, just leave. I'll show you where you're going to go. All of us would be signing up for that, wouldn't we? Yeah. Mystery vacation. Okay. We see in Genesis 17 when Abram was 99 years old. See, Jack, you got a ways to go yet. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, that's a couple things. I joke about Jack's age, but part of this is also you're not so old, Jack and Amy that you can stop following Jesus. None of us will age out on discipleship. It may take a very different form, but we don't age out of discipleship. The second thing is the very reason that he can walk before God and he can be blameless is the fact that he is God Almighty, the God who gives us his strength to do these very things. And so we, there is an element of empowerment that comes here, not simply command that is found here. 
And so what this is getting at is that our faith is meant to increasingly shape our life. We'll get to that more in a little bit. But we see, or should see, that we have a tendency, if we're honest, to run ahead of Jesus. Or to wander off and are going our own way like sheep sometimes do. But we have to remember things like Hebrews 12 where Jesus is revealed to us as the founder and perfecter of our faith. And the, the, the word that is used there has that idea of a trailblazer. Meaning he's the one who goes before us. He's the one who's got the machete in his hand who's chopping down all the excess plants and everything, making a path so that we can follow behind him on that path. And we need to keep our eyes on Jesus so that we're staying on the path and going the way that he wants us to go. But this is not a physical journey, like in some ways Elisha's journey with Elijah was. Jesus is not saying, uh, you know, you need to move to Palestine and walk on the roads that Jesus walked on. That's not the idea that we're getting at here. Rather, we see it's living a life of faithfulness to God. In other words, we are leaving our sins in increasing measure in order to become like Jesus in increasing measure. And so if we get back to uh, John Frame's triangle, we see uh, that Jesus is the goal to become increasingly like Him. He's the normative. He's the norm, the standard. He is exactly, as it talks about in Romans 8, what God is forming in us Jesus, His patience, His love, His gentleness, His righteousness, His wisdom. And so for each of us, okay, that is the standard. That's where we're going. But over here, we're all different. Meaning, we all have different sins that we need to leave and become more like Jesus. We all have different weaknesses that afflict us and make it difficult for us to be like Jesus. We all have different strengths, which are meant to bless others, but sometimes can become an obstacle to walking with Jesus because they lead us to pride. <laughs> okay, But not only that, but we also have the reality of different circumstances. Some of you are married. Some of you have never been married. Some of you are divorced. Those are very different circumstances in which to, you are meant to live out and follow Jesus in those circumstances. Those aren't the only circumstances. Some of you have jobs you love. Some of you have jobs you hate. Some of you wish you had a job. A lot of circumstances. That we deal with. And so what it, what's going, what is meant to go on is we are called to trust, to love, and obey Jesus as we are in the midst of our circumstances. And so, for instance, this means that I am a man who is 50 years old, who has a wife and four kids, who suffers from hypertension, 
who experienced some childhood trauma, which left debris, makes it difficult for me at times to follow Jesus like I want to follow Jesus. We all have those things. We all have these circumstances that are the context in which we are called to follow Jesus. And some of these things make it easier and some of these things make it more difficult. But that's where we follow Jesus. Not in some imaginary place where everything is perfect and we have no problems. And so following Jesus takes place in the midst of some very difficult circumstances. Secondly, following Jesus trusts him in those circumstances. And this is sort of where I get to where we started this sermon. Peter is not the only one who's there. You see, John's back there too. And perhaps some of the other disciples, but, but Peter only singles out John because John is one of his closest friends. And John, of course, obscures his own identity He's the, you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he goes back to the moment of betrayal, uh, not by Peter, but the one of Judas. You know, he, he's the one that was leaning upon Jesus' chest when Peter said, hey, ask him who it is. And so he has an intimate relationship with Jesus as well as an intimate relationship with Peter. And so that's why he's following. He loves both those men. Those were the two most important men in his life. And so he can't help but want to eavesdrop on this conversation. And so Peter turns, sees John, and asks, Lord, what of this man? He's kind of wondering, what's in store for for John? You've told me what's in store for me. What about him? And it's a sense in which he's almost acting like Jesus is a fortune teller. And that's not who Jesus is. He knows the future, but his his goal is not to tell the future. He then issues what I find to be, and church history has found to be, a confusing and controversial reply. If it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? As we think about this Passage. What becomes clear, and particularly when John talks about how it was misinterpreted, we see, as Matthew Henry notes, we learn the great, uh, we learn the aptness of men to misinterpret the sayings of Christ. A lot of people have done a lot of bad things with this statement for some strange reason. There seem to be three main options of what's going on here. One is that. Um, he, until I come refers to the second coming, the return of Jesus. And so it would sort of be like, John's not going to die ever, but he will be like Elijah, who was, who never, and Enoch, as we see as well in Genesis, who never tasted death, but the Lord brought them straight into his presence. And so this would be, uh, however you understand the rapture to take place. Uh, we're not getting into that today. We'll, First Thessalonians, when we get back to it soon. Um, but he's going to go straight into the presence of Jesus. That's how some people have interpreted this passage. 
It could refer perhaps until Jesus comes for him at his death. Uh, you know, we see in places uh, like Jude, it talks about in verse 6, uh, but when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, uh, he did not presume to announce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And what's missing in the, you know, what's easy to miss there is the devil and Michael are fighting for the body of Moses. We're not sure what that's about. But some people believe that Jesus comes for us at the moment of our death, and so there's that possibility of what it is. The third possibility is that the idea that Jesus is coming in judgment upon the nation of Israel and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., which is the first part of the Olivet Discourse. He's going to live longer than than Peter did. Peter died before that prophecy was fulfilled in A.D. 70. Peter died during the persecution of Nero in the 60s. We don't know what Peter was, uh, Jesus was getting at, because the point is, what is that to you? That's the point. Peter, I'm calling you to follow me in the midst of your circumstances, and I am calling John to follow me in the midst of his circumstances. What you need to do, Peter, is follow me. He repeats that command to Peter. What is that to you? You follow me. Focus on where I'm leading you and where you've got to go. Don't focus on where I'm leading him and where he's got to go. Peter, you're going to go to Rome eventually. John is going to Ephesus. And he'll take a slight detour for a while on the Isle of Patmos, thanks to the same guy who's going to kill you, Nero. Where I'm getting at is this, is that we often look over the fence at other people's lives. I look over the fence at Greg and go, oh, why is there no big church that wants me? Okay. This is what we do. It's almost unavoidable because of our sinfulness. We look at our friend who gets engaged and we go, why not me? We do a lot of that, looking over the fence, looking at their circumstances and wondering, why not me? What's wrong with me? Well, at least that's my default. Okay, We all have different defaults. I tend to look at people with better circumstances and then struggle with envy and, dis- and despair and then take the blame. I, you know, I stink as a pastor. That's why I'm at the pastor of the smallest PCA church in Tucson. The oldest and smallest. <laughs> Thank you. Some, some of us tend to look on the lives of others who have worse lives and we get puffed up. I'm so glad that that isn't my life. And we rejoice and we, we get filled with the sin of pride instead of the sin of envy. So we each have sort of a different default in that. Okay? So glad my life isn't filled with the misery of their lives. I must be doing something right. Is how some people approach it. 
But we have to remember that not only is Jesus the same yesterday and today and forever, but that we all follow the very same Jesus even though we have very different circumstances. In fact, I mean, you, you follow the same Jesus that Peter followed, the same Jesus that John followed, the same Jesus that Augustine followed, uh, that Calvin followed, uh, that Luther followed, and I could go on and on and on. I'll throw in John Newton because I like John Newton. Okay? We follow the same Jesus, but the, the path that he lays out for us, while it ends up making us look like Jesus, the path there may look very different. Last I checked, none of you were slave traders like John Newton was. But that was an essential part of how God made him the man that he was and how God used him and the way that he used him after he reclaimed him from the dung heap of being a slave trader. And so, in other words, what I'm saying is, be content in the path that God has put you on instead of always looking at someone else's path. Your task is to follow Jesus in the circumstances of your life, not in the circumstances of someone else's life. You're meant to encourage one another But no one can be faithful in your place. And you can't be faithful in someone else's place. I hope that's not too confusing. While we follow the same Jesus, we travel different terrain, and we must keep our eyes focused on Jesus and the process. Thirdly, following Jesus involves bearing witness to Jesus. And we see this more clearly, I think, in the, in the, the, the final ending, the real ending of John's gospel. You see, disciples are those who follow Jesus, and John followed Jesus because Jesus had loved him. And as a result, John now loved Jesus. And so if Jesus has loved you and you thou love him, it is natural for you to follow him. This gospel that we've studied is essentially John bearing witness to the various things that he saw and that he heard. As Jonathan Dodson puts it in his book on discipleship, a disciple is someone who learns the gospel, relates the gospel, and communicates the gospel. So it's someone who believes the message of Jesus who then relates it or integrates it into the wholeness of their lives increasingly over time, but then also bears witness or communicates this good news to people who don't know it yet. Meaning it's not supposed to stop with you. That's exactly what John was doing right here. John claims that his testimony is not exhaustive. He said, there were also many other things that Jesus did. And I'm reminded of the words of one of my other professors, Richard Pratt, who said, you can't say everything anytime you say anything. I'm reading a book by Jared Wilson right now called Unparalleled, and he mentions that his publisher put him on a word count. The Holy Spirit put John on a word count. 
How I wish my editor would have put me on a word count. Some of you this morning might be thinking, we wish the Holy Spirit would put a word count on Steve. There were so many things he could have said that he didn't say, but what we have is what we need to hear. Okay, It's not John editing what he thinks is important. It's the Holy Spirit editing what he knows is important. He knows exactly what we needed in those four gospel accounts. Okay? And so when we witness or bear witness to people, we don't have to tell them everything. This is not a humongous intellectual download that we give unto people. But we need to say something that's pertinent to them, that applies to the needs that they have revealed, or perhaps, as Mike Alameda talked about, the barriers in their heart. We address those things. For instance, many years ago in a car up in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, I was talking with a man named Mark, and he was really hung up on the divinity of Jesus, and so that's what I needed to talk about. And part of what I needed to talk about with him was stop talking about what the Jehovah's Witnesses think. Start figuring out what Jesus said about who he is. As I talked with uh, various neighbors in my neighborhood in Florida, Charles 805, that was our nickname for him because he lived at 805. Good guy. And Brandon, my dope-smoking neighbor down the street as a teenager, both of whom had been raised Catholic, both of whom I kept having to talk about the sufficiency of the grace that is found in Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's what they needed to hear. And so we are meant to believe Jesus as He is presented to us in the Gospel. We're intended then to follow this very same Jesus in all of the details of life. And we are then meant to bear witness to that very same Jesus as He is revealed again in the Gospel. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And so while this takes place here in the context of Peter's ministry, we see that ministry is not the totality of life. Ministry is meant to take place within the context of following Jesus. Your life is meant to be lived within the context of following Jesus. We follow Him as He leads us out of this life and into the next life. We follow Him so that we become more like He is. We follow Him who gave us life and who sustains our life to His glory. We follow Jesus in the midst of the story that He's written for each of us, which is a little bit different, but yet is still woven together into the great story that we find in the Scriptures about creation, fall, and redemption in Christ. And so we live a pilgrim life, as we're going to talk about in Psalms this summer, that is intended to bear witness to the great God that was sent to save sinners such as us. And so that's where we finish John's Gospel. But may John's Gospel never be finished with us. Let's pray. 
Father, that is um, an amazing note by which you essentially ended the Gospel according to John. Reminding us it's not for our intellectual curiosity. But John's Gospel is meant so that we would believe and by believing we would follow. And the rest of our life is caught up in following Jesus where'er He leads us for His glory and honor and our good. So Father, be with us that as a community we would follow You. That because we believe in the covenant and therefore a covenant community, there's a story of this congregation that began a long time ago and is continuing now and will continue into the future and help us to follow Jesus. Help us to discern the direction in which He is leading us to make us the people that He's making us. And Father, be with us as well individually because we're all in different circumstances, and we all need Jesus to be with us and to lead us and guide us through those circumstances. And that these are the very things that you use to make us like Jesus. And so help us not to curse our circumstances, even though they might be hard, but to trust you to work all things together for that good of making us like Jesus. Father, it is so very difficult for us to trust You. We are predisposed to not trust You. It is only by the Spirit that we are enabled to trust You. And so we ask that You would continue to pour out Your Spirit, to fill us with Your Spirit so that we are trusting in Jesus and keeping our eye on Him and not letting Him out of our sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.